it's actually really dangerous when we kind of play down God's majesty and his transcendence and just sort of make him into someone who, who's nice. When you kind of look at the scale of beings and the scale of reality, the gap between me and an ant is actually a lot less than the gap between me and God. And I can't be friends with an ant. Welcome to Faith and Culture, a production of the Augustan Institute. Every week, we explore the glory of the Catholic faith and the beauty of Catholic culture. And now, here's the host of Faith and Culture, Joseph Pierce. Hello, I'm Joseph Pierce, and welcome to another Faith and Culture podcast of the Augustan Institute. My guest uh, once again is my good friend, John Seahorn. Welcome, John. Hello, Joseph. And John is an assistant professor of theology here at the Augustan Institute at the Graduate Program of Theology, which we have here, and of course, one of my colleagues. And so uh, we're going to discuss today um, friendship with God. And I certainly, this that with me, I know when when we, we begin a discussion, I, I like to get things clear as regards sort of defining our terms. Sure. So if we can discuss friendship with God, perhaps we should begin with dis- defining what exactly we mean by friendship. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, there's actually a a very long and venerable tradition of discussing the topic of uh, friendship among philosophers uh, in particular. Uh, One of kind of the classical discussions for this is in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. There's a lot we can say about that, but I kind of want to cut to the chase. So uh, I'll I'll get to what Aquinas says about this uh, in a really crucial passage uh, where he actually talks about friendship with God, but he relies on... Uh, something Aristotle says, which is which is simply this, right? Not every relationship of love is also one of friendship. In order for it to be friendship, the love has to be mutual, and it also has to be accompanied by benevolence, which he defines here as willing the good of the other. So it can sound a little bit dry and arid, but it, I think it's important to kind of put on the table at the beginning, right? A, a relationship of mutual love in which each party wills the good of the other. Okay. So in that case, then, what I'm thinking is that th- how do we qualify? Because all right, we can, I, 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 I can certainly understand why God um, will love me and lays down his life for me. And so mm-hmm. the love is coming from his direction. But I also know that I'm a miserable sinner. And I also know that my fellow men are miserable sinners. I don't think it's always true that we are yeah. in friendship with him. So in what sense can we talk about friendship with God, bearing in mind our own incapacity sometimes to love in the way that we're called to? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because uh, I think too often we sort of take friendship with God for granted. We We maybe tend to have you know, this kind of dumbed down idea of who God is as uh, a nice old guy. Um, there's a wonderful little popular book that came out recently uh, from uh, Ulrich Lehner, who uh, he teaches now actually at the University of Notre Dame, a very fine scholar of early modernity. But he wrote a, a little popular book uh, based on his experience of teaching theology to undergraduates called God is Not Nice. Oh, I've heard of that book. You've heard think, of that book. In fact, I think we covered, I, I edited a magazine called the St. Austin Review, and I think we actually published a review of it. Oh, sure. So I've, I, I've, I know it's secondhand via the reviewer. Yeah. Who actually, if I remember correctly, um, if you forgive the tangent, is a former student and alumna of the Augustine Institute. So uh, 
when I remember her name, I will tell you afterwards. But uh, but the was um, it Veronica? It was Veronica Arntz. Yes, yes. So Veronica Arntz actually wrote the review. So uh, oh, so they, he's actually the fruits of your labors, the labors go. of your uh, faculty I colleagues here. I love it. In the outpouring of of her learning that she learned here in that review. Yeah. Uh, having gone off on that tangent, please return to the the point. Not at all. Yes. So uh, so Laner's point, right, is that is that it's actually really dangerous when we kind of um, play down God's majesty and um, and his his transcendence and just sort of make him into someone who, who's nice. Because, you know, when someone who's nice likes me or loves me or wants to be my friend, well, that might be pleasant, but it's not particularly awe-inspiring. Right. Right? And the thing to remember with God is that, um, that when you kind of look at the scale of beings and the scale of reality, you know, the gap between me and an ant is actually a lot less than the gap between me and God. Right. And I can't be friends with an ant. Right. I might have warm feelings and about can, the ant. Nor can an ant be a friend, <laughs> f- friend of you. And that's exactly <laughs> it, right? The, the disproportion between us right. is so great. And Aquinas is very much alive to this, this objection, right? Um, and, and really, he kind of invites wonder at it that, that Jesus says to the disciples, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. Right. I can understand being a servant of God, being a subject of God, but being his friend, right? This is really remarkable because means friendship— Does this mean, with this mutuality we mentioned earlier from Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle, does this mean that, that part of the deal, if you like, is that we are called to be friends of his, yes. which means that we are actually called to do what love demands and commands. No, that's exactly right, right? So in the first place, uh, Aquinas says, look, this is this is actually the gospel, that God in his great love for us has stooped down not only to redeem us from our sins, but actually to call us into his own life, right? So I, I love this in, in this article of the Summa where he discusses this. Uh, one of his key verses he draws from uh, chapter one of First Corinthians. He's, where where St. Paul says uh, that God is faithful, uh, the God who has called you into the fellowship, right, the, 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 the communion, right, the sharing of his son, right, that he's called us into that very fellowship that he himself as Trinity is, right? You actually see this in John's gospel as well, where if you go back to John chapter 5, it's hard to see in, in the English translation sometimes, but the language in John chapter 5 that Jesus uses to talk about his relationship with the Father, about his mission from the Father, is actually friendship language. Isn't that scary? I mean, I, it's it, terrifying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because the point is, okay, but what God's calling us to is that we we have to reciprocate, and that somehow right. or other we have to be up to the job. That, that obviously we require we, we need His grace to, yep. to be able to do so. But nonetheless, we do have to cooperate. We, our will is involved. And, and to think that we are called to actually love God in the same way in which he loves us mm-hmm. is something which is not just mind-blowing, but very scary, isn't it? It is scary. And that's why, <laughs> this is why, and again, actually, just before Jesus calls them friends in John 15, uh, he says to him, now, I and a couple of my colleagues like to mess with students, right? If we're quoting this verse, we'll say, well, you remember what Jesus says to the disciples, apart from me, you can do a few things. But he doesn't say a few things. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing, right? And so it's true that, that we're called to cooperate with his grace and so forth, but we can't produce this love. It's utterly beyond our capacity to do. And so we have to trust the Holy Spirit. We have to trust what St. Paul says, yes, that God's but, uh, faithful. Yes, but this is, I mean, this is what, you know, one of these very tricky 
things that I grapple with and I think that the theologians and philosophers grapple mm-hmm. with because yes we can do nothing unless he makes the first move mm-hmm. I and mean, I see actually this is present very, for me mystically when I say the Angelus mm. because the first part of the Angelus is is the angel of the Lord declares unto Mary in other mm-hmm. words the, the, the initiative is taken by the God initiative, sure. uh, but then we do need the fiat, fiat means you know be it done unto me so in other words there is there is an active participation once the gift of grace is given where we have to accept or not so the, right. and that's the scary part because you know the, well, the, the, there's an active reception but it's never activist if you want, right? So it's not as if we take this injection of grace and then God says, okay, now go off and do what you can with that, right? He does want us to use those gifts to bear fruit, but it's always in this posture, I think, of radical faith and trust, right? You see this really clearly, I think, um, in the figure of Abraham. So I did a little background on this. I actually recently gave a paper um, based on some research I'd done on this question of friendship with God, not in Aquinas, but in uh, some early Greek Uh, theologians, Greek patristic theologians. And I looked especially at St. Irenaeus, who lives in the second century, and then Clement of Alexandria, who lives kind of at the turn of the third century. And one of the things I noticed is that each of these two uh, theologians privileged a different Old Testament figure when they talked about friendship with God. Now, we can get to Clement if you want in a minute, but Irenaeus really talks a lot about Abraham. Right? He's very concerned to show against a number of heretical groups the unity of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Abraham is a really wonderful kind of linchpin for that. I mean, it's St. Paul's linchpin in texts like Galatians 3 or Romans 4, talking about how we become sons and heirs of Abraham. And the key for Abraham, for Irenaeus, is always his faith. Right? It, it, it's Abraham who believes God and his faith was counted as righteousness. Right, Not just in a passive sense. Uh, actually, it's a rather demanding kind of faith. Right, He has to leave his homeland. He's got to leave uh, his, his network of connections in Ur of the Chaldees and follow God to this land that he's going to show him. He lives his life as a sojourner. Right, trusting, and he, and, that, he ha- and he has to lay down the life of his own son. Yes, and for Irenaeus, that is the culmination. Yeah, That's I mean, again, this but this takes us back full circle, isn't this scary? <laughs> it's I mean, you know, what, what, I keep what, telling you, this. yeah, <laughs> what the friendship demands is actually very scary. We are yeah. we are called to lay down every single thing that we are yeah. and every single thing that we have self-sacrificially in love, as God has done for us. Yeah. And that's the reciprocal friendship we're talking about. Yeah. So that's that's that is truly radical it takes us to the very roots of who we are and what friendship is mm-hmm. and what love is and what our relationship with god is so okay so you mentioned Irenaeus. um what about clement well if i could say one more thing actually about, about abraham and the laying down right yes now Irenaeus, Irenaeus doesn't actually quote from the letter to the Hebrews on this, but it's really clear that he's read it very carefully. It's in the background. It's a different topic as to why he doesn't explicitly quote it. But one of the things that, uh, that Hebrews chapter 11 says is that, um, that Abraham obeyed God's command, trusting that God could even raise the dead, right? And that he did receive Isaac back, right? The angel stays his hand when he's right. about to uh, bring the dagger down. And then the, the, the letter to the Hebrews says that this was a type. And Irenaeus and, and other fathers will connect this to what Jesus says in John chapter 8, that Abraham uh, desired to see his day, and he did see it, and he rejoiced, he was glad, right? And so even though we walk by faith and not by sight, 
we do have faith in the resurrection. We get glimpses of this. And you see this in Paul too, right? right. He talks about carrying around in his body at all times the dying of Jesus. Right. Not because we have a death wish, right? but so that the life of Jesus can well, be shown in the his death flesh as well. Jesus is the seed of the resurrection, shall we exactly say. Right. So, exactly so, right. Yeah, and again, I'm glad you did clarify that. What are theologians for? But to uh, <laughs> clarify the ignorant... Uh, After muddying uh, the water. We muddy the waters first. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but again, the, the reason, of course, that the, the, the great, mm-hmm. great demands placed upon us by, by our friendship with God are tolerable, if you like, uh, is the fact that we know that they point to eternal life. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. This is a, this is actually a nice segue then to, to Clement, because yeah. the figure that that, um, that he tends to privilege, I mean, he does, of course, talk about Abraham as a friend of God. James, uh, the, the epistle of James says this explicitly, that that Abraham was called the friend of God. I think it's James 2.23. Um, but Clement tends to focus more on Moses. Right in Exodus 33, it says that Moses would speak with God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Right, and and Clement um, always had his eyes kind of on that prize of contemplative uh, union with God. Of the time when, as Saint Paul says at the end of First Corinthians 13, we will no longer see as in a glass darkly, but face to face. And uh, and so Moses provides this wonderful example of that for him. But even there, there's a task. Right, because God has stooped down to redeem Israel from Egypt. He's heard their cries, their groanings under Pharaoh, and he's called Moses to help him do that. Right, so being a friend of God, even being in that contemplative state, doesn't mean that our work is simply done. It means that God's going to ask us to help him. Right, right, right. <laughs> to work through us. So the contemplation actually needs to lead to active participation in evangelization. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. So, yep. so where, where just, just, to, just to play devil's advocate here, because it's fun. I love it. <laughs> I mean, where does this leave um, contemplative orders such as the Trappists? I mean... Oh, for uh, heaven's sake, they're some of God's most important co-workers. Well, listen, I, I said I was playing devil's advocate. I'm not advocating for the devil. Um, but I do think that, you know, it'd be good for us to explain. You know, so if yeah. those, that, those that, that, should we say, lock themselves away in a cloister and mm-hmm. spend their, their life in prayer, mm-hmm. how is that helping those who are out on the streets um, getting their hands dirty, so to speak, for God? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think it's important for us to see the communion between those two types of, of vocation. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, uh, look, it's what St. Paul says, right? It's one body with many different members, and if the hand tries to be the foot, it's not going to go well, right, right? right? We can't all be hands, we can't all be feet. Right. So, so certainly uh, I'd want to say that it wouldn't be good if every Christian thought, okay, I'm a Christian now, I better go off and find a hermitage somewhere uh, and kind of leave it at that. But it equally wouldn't be good if every Christian uh, said, well, I, I got to be out doing things all the time. Right? right. That's the only way to bear fruit. Right. right. And I think what this really gets back to in some ways is maybe at least the danger of a loss of real faith in the power of prayer right. and of the mystical unity of the body. Yeah. There's a there's a wonderful quotation from St. Peter Damien, tw- uh, sorry, 11th century uh, reformer who'd been a hermit for a time. Uh, to Much to his chagrin, he was called out of his hermitage in order to help reform the papacy and, uh, and the hierarchy. Uh, thanks be to God that he obeyed that call. But um, he wrote some really wonderful things about the contemplative life. And he noted that when, when the priest who's a hermit celebrates mass by himself, he says, it's not for nothing that he still says, Dominus Vobiscum, the Lord be with all of you, right. right? Because he says the whole church is mystically present in the sacrifice of 
the mass. Yeah. And, and so the question is, do we really believe that? And yeah. that the prayers and sacrifices of, of contemplatives really do forward God's work in the world. What I actually, I'm reminded of here, and I, I'm going I'm to trump you, if you like. But oh, I love it. Not in terms of learning, oh, heaven forbid, and, and that's not going to happen. But um, in terms of, uh, I, I'm going I'm to quote a, a, a saint that's much more up to date than any of yours. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, I mean, you've, quote, you've quoted, obviously, uh, you know, the, the prophets, the patriarchs. You've quoted, obviously, uh, the uh, early church fathers. And, yeah, I uh, stop at about and, the 14th and, century. And St. Paul, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, to, I, I'm stopping on October the 13th, 2019, mm. uh, which is the canonization of St. John Henry Newman. Mm. And what I was thinking about in this discussion about the contemplative life um, and the active life, not the contemplation is not active, but... Um, that it's a wonderful poem that, that St. John Henry Newman wrote called The Sign of the Cross. Mm-hmm. And this was, of course, it's, a, it's apologetics for the Catholic faith because, you know, that's one thing that signifies who we are visually. And what he's saying is just the sign itself, just making the sign of the cross a wordless prayer for all we know is helping some soul on the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. And I do know, you know, I often confess that I'm, my life is so busy, so much busyness in it doing things, I mean, such as podcasts, <laughs> you know, that, that, that sometimes I don't have enough time for contemplative prayer just to sit down in the silence mm-hmm. of the Lord. And it's only very reassuring to know that out there there are people, you know, in, in Trappist monasteries, for instance, that are praying for me, uh, if not by name, then just in a general sense. And yes. I'm getting the spiritual benefits of their prayer, even though I'm unaware of it and I can't see it. Okay, I'll, I'll trump you once more. <laughs> we're gonna go. We're gonna go now to the end of time. Okay, right? because right. you, get the, you I, get the last word I, literally now. Obviously, well, I, right? I, no, I can't, I, this, I can't this is trump fantastic. that. We're, we're gonna resolve the chord progression here, right? So, I think one of the least appreciated doctrines of the Catholic Church is the final judgment. And I, I don't know the paragraph numbers off the top of my head, so uh, listeners will have to look them up uh, on their own. But, um, but when the Catechism of the Catholic Church talks about the final judgment, it's so beautiful because uh, what it says is going to happen there, right? Not the particular judgment after you die as an individual, but the final judgment. Because it says that at the final judgment, God's entire plan, his entire wise providential plan is going to be laid bare. And we will be able to see all of the effects and the causes of all of our sins, but also all of our good deeds to the very end and see how God has woven them together. So one day we'll be able to see how, you know, the, the, the prayer of a cloistered nun saved me from falling into sin here. Wow. Or how the prayer of this Trappist monk, you know, uh, uh, obtained the, the, the miraculous cure of this sick baby over there. Wow. Right, which is which is really I, I get so excited thinking about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, John, I'm I'm actually delighted that you trumped me, and I'm I'm happy to uh, to to concede defeat. That's very noble of you, Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> well, my guest today has been my good friend John Seahorn, uh, assistant professor of theology here at the Augustine Institute. John, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Joseph. And thank you for joining me. And please do join me again on uh, the next uh, Faith and Culture podcast. My name is Joseph Pierce. I've been your host. Please do join me again. Until then, goodbye and God bless. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Faith and Culture with Joseph Pierce. Faith and Culture is a production of the Augustine Institute. 
For more information, please visit us at faithandculture.com.